Oh, yes. This is the Hardcore Marketing Show. I'm Casey Cheshire, your host for this epic journey. And today's show, sponsored by Cheshire Impact, on a mission to help people maximize their use of Pardot and Salesforce. CheshireImpact.com. Bam. And there it is. We actually hit record now. We, we've been uh, having a podcast within a podcast over here, having a great time chatting with the guests today. I guess, I guess we'll share it with you all now. You can all hear the conversation. We've been having a, a great conversation already. Um, I guess he's a, a marketing leader, a business advisor, a strategist, keynote speaker, podcaster as well. That's some of the things we were talking about beforehand. Fractional CMO and also a marketing advisor to B2B and B2C brands all over the world. Ones you've heard of, ones you haven't heard of. Kettle One, had any of that lately? During the quarantine? Yes, sir. Uh, yes, sir. Unilever, <laughs> Axe, Purina, lots of different brands. We're going to talk about all sorts of things today. Uh, podcast host of the Business Growth Cafe, founder and president of the Ponzi Group, Angela Ponzi. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, you know, I figured we'd let everyone in on our conversation. <laughs> yeah, we, we had a great conversation. Unfortunately, you, uh, you know, you hadn't pushed the record button. Well, that one was Here for we us. are now. That was, that for, was us. for us. All this, right. this is for everyone else. Now we're letting um, everybody else in on the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know. So, you know, the theme, it's our marketing leadership series, and we want to be, you know, exposing the bad marketing, filling it in with the good. And so I'm going to pass you this thing over here. It's heavy. So hold on a second. Okay, here you go. Oh, look at that. Thor's, Thor's hammer. hammer. You got it? I love it. Yeah. Got it? Okay. Take Thor's hammer and smash for me some kind of marketing myth, bogus strategy, misconception that drives you crazy and set the record straight once and for all. Well, I, I think there's there's several. And the, the biggest one for me is when I talk to a, a client or a prospect or anybody in the industry and I, I really dig into what they know about their customer and how they, on an ongoing basis, gather information. And typically it's, well, my Salesforce, uh, they give me back information. They tell me, you know, what the, what the customers need, but that's on such an individual basis. And there's a built-in bias. You know, anytime we're yes. doing interviewing and things like there's a bias, right? Either maybe the customer pissed me off that day, or I just didn't write, make the right notes. And so everything's being filtered. Or it makes me so, look good. Right. Or it makes me look good. Right. Cause yeah, you want to look good to, to your management. <laughs> And so right. for me, the key is the voice of the customer, but, but getting it directly from them. And so uh, utilizing some kind of research tool, if you will, and it, to gather those insights. So what are the insights? So market research in itself is an insight. It's gathering knowledge that you can find those insights or those nuggets that you can use really to help drive everything else, whether yeah. it's your messaging, whether it's decisions on your vertical markets, decisions on new products, and, and I think that the myth is people can sit around and a lot of companies sit around in a room and they make decisions and they're just talking amongst themselves. And, and there's a lot of bias within that. And, and, and one's called, I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's like, basically it's called follow the leader. And, and so the person who is the leader in the room, people tend to start acknowledging, yeah, you're right, you're right. They're afraid to to make comments because they don't want to lose their jobs. Yeah, time. like the king's new clothes, right? Oh, yeah, that looks great, your kingship. Yeah, and, and so what happens is decisions are being made. And, and there's a story that I tell, and it's about uh, Vizio and their uh, 3D televisions. 
And so and after Avatar came out and Vizio and Panasonic and Sony were all racing to the market with the 3D TV. I remember that craze. Remember that, yeah. right? So uh, Vizio won, sort of. So they hit the market, uh, early adopters, the techies, man, sales just took off like crazy. Then about three, four, five years in, there was a definite decline to the point where the sales were really struggling. And I asked my listeners or my guests in my presentations, why? So I'll ask you, why did sales decline? You why know? did sales decline? Well, for at, 3D TVs. The Avatar thing had been long in the past and no one made any more movies that were 3D, is that? No, it's 3D television now. No. So, oh, no one made any more TV. No one ever made, t did anyone ever make a TV show? I don't think they did. I don't think they did. But the reason they, they failed was because of these. Nobody wanted to wear 3D glasses all the time to watch television. Oh. Right? And, and nobody ever asked the question. They never went out to the consumer and said, you know, what do you think about this product? You know, great. Would you wear these glasses 24 seven when you're watching TV? Cause now a 3d TV is your primary TV. Nobody ever asked the question. And so when it got into the general consumer, people stopped wanting to wear the glasses. They started buying other television of course, yeah. sales, and they eventually pulled the product. I mean, I, I could see wearing them for a movie, right? I wore them at Avatar, but then yeah. you take them off. Uh, your eyes kind of feel a little strained anyways after that. So, so you're just trying to sit at home and relax and chill out wearing these things. And your eyes are like bugging out. Though. Yeah, I could see that yeah. not working at so all. It didn't, it didn't work. <laughs> one of the interesting parts of the, of the case study, and I, I'm not making this up, it's documented, is at one point in time in the boardroom, when they were discussing it amongst themselves, somebody said, what about the glasses? What if, would people wear the glasses all the time? And the board basically, the people in the meeting basically said, we're not concerned with that. Yes, they will, or whatever the answer was. And so they ignored a really smart question, never went out and researched it, and really was one of the major factors in the down, downfall of 3D, you know, 3D TVs becoming wow. kind of a, a big thing. And that so, was some kind of quote that was from it? Like someone was yeah, there? It was, that, it, was, it was documented in, in, and so I was, so I've been working on a, a book about marketing and, but the part of that I use in presentations. Yeah. So I tell these different case studies about decisions that were made about not knowing the voice of the customer. And that was one that I use and talk about all the time because it's, yeah. it's so blatant. We under, we know the company, we've heard of them, maybe even on a, a, a television. I'm not, I'm not disparaging the company because it's a great company. I have their product. Uh, matter of fact, I'm looking at my monitor is, <laughs> is one, but. But you don't have a 3D TV. <laughs> but I don't have a 3D TV. And so you, you think about those decisions. You think about decisions where I was working with a, a household cleaning product that decided to do uh, expansions, line, line extensions. So we looked at, can we turn it into a, a hand gel? Can we use it for barbecue cleaning? Can we use it for all these different markets? And eventually there were some that just wouldn't work. But the only way we knew that is we just went out into the field and actually did focus groups and went like on the golf golf, golf uh, club cleaning product. We actually went to golf courses, gave samples out, tested oh. it, got feedback. So we were getting right from the customers that this is great, or this is a problem, or I don't like this, or, Hey, I would never put this on my barbecue. And so by doing things like that gives you so much information that, that takes it out of what you think. And, 
friend of mine used to say, you know, think outside the box, but he used to say, get out of the box, walk around, take a look before you make a decision. And, and I think that's really important. So that's the, one of the myths that, that I really think is big is that number one, do you really need the voice of the customer? And the other part of that is, yeah, maybe I do, but it's too expensive. And mm -hmm. that's, that's the, that's the ultimate myth. That's, that's the, not getting the voice is, is, is the result of somebody saying it's just too expensive, right. but it's really not. I mean, Take too do, much time or too expensive to have too time, too much money. Yeah. And, I and think if, we all kind of get how important it is, right? We should, you, you should, you should know how important it is because, but so many companies make decisions without ever going to market. I mean, if you're doing one-on-ones with customers and those are typically 30 minute, 40 minute kind of interviews, you, know, you only really need 15, maybe 20, depending on if you got different segments that you're looking at. And yeah. you'll start to hear the pattern. And once you hear the pattern, then you know, so, you know, the, the cream's rising to the mm, top and you know what the, the issues pattern. are, yeah. right? So if you talk to two people, you might have completely different things. But as you start to talk to more, if there's issues, if there's customer service issues, if there's product issues, if there's communications issues, pricing issues, those will all start to rise because all, everybody will start to have those similar problems. So how expensive is that? I mean, you don't even have to hire me, right? Put a good solid questionnaire together, put one or two people on it to make those phone calls from an internal standpoint. It takes you a week or two, gather that information, document it and, and feel confident that you can present it to management without losing your job, right? I can do that because I'm a consultant. I didn't, I don't work there. So I'm going to tell you, you know, the way it is a lot of times internally, once again, there's a bias built in, mm. but I always say if you're doing interviews, it should be one or two people. So, so there's a consistency in the cadence and the way I talk, the way I ask questions, the way I probe. Well, if we've going to do 10 interviews and we do 10 different people doing the interviews, we're going to have bias because right. you and I are going to interview differently than this person and that person. So, right. so just stepping back, thinking it through. And um, so that's, that's my, I'm going to step off my podium now, get back in my chair. And that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's a big one for me. That, that yeah. is the, probably the biggest debate I have with, with people all the time with the importance. They know it. Like you said, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but. Right. Or, or it sounds like it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then we half-ass it and that happens we too. think we've got it, but we really, it's like an iceberg. We, have no freaking clue and like you mentioned even you'd like you know get get the survey then have people call but i think sometimes people try to skip a step and just send out a survey but i mean how how bad is that if it just asks that surface level question and well i think again part of it is what's your objective so yeah. in from a qualitative standpoint right so those are interviews those are focus groups and you can also use a a structured survey for that too what you can't okay. do in a structured survey if you don't get the get enough of the numbers if you will to, to to make it statistically valid right it's it's directional right it's all observational yeah. it's directional so i can do a survey right now and i do it all the time we do these assessments and you know one company will fill it out and we make observational recommendations based on what they tell us but if i have a hundred people or 200 people now i've got something that's statistically valid that I can project. So I go into an industry and I want to research podcasting and I go out and I talk to 200 businesses about the, the value of a podcasting for their marketing. 
well, I only need to do two, maybe 300. And if I want to do segmentation, I'll do a little bit more so I can have different cells of 25 or 50 companies in each. So it's not a lot. Right. But once, but once I have all that, then I have something that I can project against. So it depends on ultimately which one. If you want to make a decision on rolling out a new product, you might start off by interviewing current customers, but you want to know if there's an opportunity in the market to really roll this product out. So you're not going to take the advice of 10 or 20 people. That's a couple focus groups. You want to go out and talk to a couple hundred. When I was in the action sports industry and we were, uh, I, I focused on surfing, skating, and snowboarding, my studies had you know, 1,000, 2,000 kids in it. Wow. So I could, I could come in and say, you know, with confidence that your brand is, or this is the new trend, or this is you know, uh, what's happening at, at street level, if you will because I, I had the numbers to do segmentation work and also to statistically have the margin of error very low and the 95% confident level and all those kinds of things. Right. Wow. You have the numbers so you can feel confident. And that we, what, you know, what is it about? Do we just, are we just trying to, I mean, are we scared? Why, why, why are we not talking to our customers as much as I mean, back in the Mad Men days, we had studies, people came in, we were marketing had the voice of the customer, but it seems like, Sometimes now we're the print shop or we're just the, the digital people, you know? Well, the, the, the bigger companies have to, right? Yeah. There's guidelines. So when I did work with um, Purina and Unilever, they have to hit norms or they can't release their, their, their advertising. Oh, know, they, wow. So they do constant testing with big, these big organizations. Ipso is one that comes to mind. So, so they go through these norms, they go through these testings and they get report cards. And if they're, advertising does not uh, um, hit those norms, they can't release it. So they're back to constantly doing it. So it's, um, so once they hit those, but when you start going down in the medium size, especially smaller businesses, they're not gonna go through that process. They're gonna do any testing, right? They might think doing A-B testing is, is their market research, right? Let's test the headline, see which one. And, and so that's ingrained in us now as we've gotten more and more and more digital, you can do it in a moment's notice. And that is true, but yeah. that's just, that's testing, but it's not pre-testing. I worked with a, a, a large financial institution and they had four t TV commercials and we copy tested three, but not the fourth. And th their attitude was, well, the first three tested well, the fourth one followed the same strategy. We're gonna save ourselves. Delivery was like $15,000. This is a huge organization. Jeez. So they ran them. The one that didn't work was the one they never tested. And I think their budget was like maybe five or six or $10 million behind just that commercial. And so they basically pissed it away because they didn't test it. And so it didn't resonate. It wasn't relevant to the customer and they had to go back and fix it and go back out. So they took a shortcut to your point. So a lot of companies just say, you know what? It's going to cost whatever, $10,000 to go out and really do a solid market research study. Yeah, I'd rather take that money and just stick it in the, in advertising or, you know, hire a new graphic artist and, right. you know, we'll figure it out as we go along. Again, for me, that's, that's the wrong attitude. It's worth the investment. I, I would always say to companies, if you take just 10% of your media budget and invest it in market research, we could probably make the 90% spend like 150% because now mm. we're much more targeted. We understand, we understand the motivations and the behaviors and we can really drill down. But 
I mean, to some degree, social media and, and PPP, PPC and PPP, right? And Facebook ads. You know, we can go on, you and I could go on right now and create a Facebook ad and put 50 bucks behind it. And, sure. You know, so it's, why am I going to test that? Well, because typically 50 bucks isn't going to buy you a whole lot of audience. That's so, true. So you're still investing a lot of money, but the, the idea of going out and spending even a few thousand dollars on testing doesn't seem to, to relate, especially in the small and the kind of the lower end of the medium sized businesses. Mm -hmm. I think we get out, we get in the small world, we, we can do a little too much of that quick start where we just sort of launch and go and a little moment of planning, just a little bit planning what we want. I like how you, when I asked you a question, your thing was like, what's your objective? Right. What's your goal here? The answer may change depending on what that goal is. Yeah. And, and I know you've heard the phrase, right? Working on your business and not just in your business. Yeah. As, as we, and I'm a small business owner, as, as a small business owner, and again, medium side, we tend to want to, you know, be in it, right? How do I make that phone call or generate that lead or whatever it happens to be? So actually stepping back, hey, and, I, and I, I'm guilty of this myself. But stepping yeah. back and st sticking a whiteboard up and, and really thinking things through is why am I doing this? What's my ultimate purpose and goal of trying to achieve this? And a lot of times it's not about a sale, right? It's mm -hmm. about awareness building. And, and I, you know, you mentioned I have a podcast. So on my, on my Google page, I set it up that if anybody goes to my page on my website, and, and spends any time there listening to a podcast, mm -hmm. I count that as a conversion. Hmm. Like, I don't yeah. make any money, but at least I know that my marketing to promote the podcast is, is working in a sense. I have other things I look at. Sure. But that's, that's one of those conversions for me. Do I make money? No. Can I eventually, do I know who's there? No. But if I continue to see my numbers go up or people, you know, again, as we were talking earlier, start, you know, trying to get on my show and they said they heard it and think they're a good guest. So it doesn't always have to be about generating a dollar. And mm -hmm. that's the other kind of thing I get into another myth. Yeah. Smash away. Is, is return on investment. It's always mm -hmm. about if I invest a dollar, how do I get $2 back? So, and, and my point is that absolutely that's what we're always after, but every tactic, can't be necessarily a revenue generator because it's 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 about integration. Uh, you and I talked in, in about I'll call it another myth, right? But it's silver bullets. Right? There's there's no silver silver bullet in marketing. It's about integration, right? Uh, you, right. You have right. silver bullets. You either you're pretending you're the Lone Ranger, or you're you know doing a werewolf hunt, because one tactic will not solve your problem. It's about integration. It's not only about integrated marketing. I like to also say it's about integrated thinking, right? So it's not just about putting a whole bunch of tactics together. It's about understanding your customer's journey, understanding, you know, their personas and who they are and what kind of how they consume information, the types of information that they want to uh, consume. And then therefore with your integrated program, your, figuring out how to reach them on their journey, where they're at, whether at the top of the funnel or the bottom of the funnel, and you're serving up that information as they need it, whether it's videos or white papers or case studies or downloads, whatever, again, it, but if I was only doing social media to these folks and, and then stop there, 
I might have built awareness and I might have even driven them depending on what my product and service is, right? I'm not going to get a big whole bunch of people converting and buying my services on a Facebook ad. Sure. But I, but I use Facebook all the time to promote the show, to promote other things that I've done, eBooks and stuff like that. Again, just trying to build awareness and thought leadership is kind of one of my objectives. So if you really look at knowing the customer, yeah. that dovetails into the silver bullet aspect because now you have a better and clear picture of, of how they're moving through their consumption of information and, and buying products and services, right? Building awareness. So those are really two areas that I, I think are really important um, to spend time working on and thinking through and not getting right to the tactics, which is mm. the other areas. Like, hi, uh, Angelo, I hear you're a marketing guy. Uh, I need a website. I need a social media campaign. I need a brochure. Mm -hmm. well, you know, who are you targeting? What are you trying to say? You know, there's, you know, who's your competition? There's a lot of stuff at that. I call it the 30,000 foot, right? Let's start at the top and work our way down into what we're trying to do as opposed to saying, I'm just going to throw out stuff and then we'll work our way back up. And it may or may not even be the right messaging, the right targeting or anything else. So that's the other thing that I, I, I think a lot of, especially in the small businesses, is this, the pressure to generate leads and revenue um, far outweighs the strategic aspect of thinking through things first. Mm. I mean, what kind of mess do we get in when we start designing everything so that everything has to have a, yeah, I love you said, everything can't have a dollar sign associated with it. Because yeah, if it well, does, do you become, you become like a direct, you like the sham wow guy at that point, everything you're trying to sell everything you got, it has a yeah, string attached to it. Right. Buy this forty nine ninety five, and we'll throw in some Ginsu knives. Right. Um, yeah. It, I, I think that that the, the, the downside of this is it becomes so focused that if they don't see that return. So I, I had a prospect call me last summer and it was a software company they're getting ready to launch. And so as in our conversations, we laid out a bunch of different strategies. But part of, again, part of it started with us really understand your product, your service, your differentiation mm -hmm. from your competitors, right? Because if you're saying we have X, Y, and Z, and they have X, Y, and Z, and they're already in the marketplace, if you're brand new, well, why would I even try you? You're going to give me a better price. Does that mean you're a discounter? Does that mean your product's cheaper, right? right? So you're going to give me a seven-day trial? No, no trials. Well, how am I going to, I'm not going to just cough up cash if I can't try it. You know, so there's all that kind of strategic thinking before you ever get to market versus those that just push it out there really quick and they weren't prepared for you know what the reactions were i i was called in i'm a, a mentor at one of the universities here for startups okay and i got called in one day and this was a a company that was starting a subscription shoe company and so hmm. targeting women and so they could and mostly girls so they could call up, send in and say, I want these pairs of shoes. You know, here's my whatever, $29.95. They get sent the shoes. They get to wear them as long as they want and then return them when they don't want them anymore. And then other people get. wear them after that? Well, their model was they were going to donate them. So I thought that was actually pretty cool. Oh, that's cool. But when I asked them, so I, I, I didn't see it sustainable. And part of the right. reason was this, just outsider looking in. 
my wife and I have all boys, but my wife and people that I know have girls and mm -hmm. my, my female friends, they don't buy their shoes on the internet. They want to go into a store and try them on. Right. Mm. And, and so I thought there was an in, inherent flaw in the model because they were assuming that because they girls could get it cheaper, right. And be able to turn the shoes around and not worry about having to buy shoes and sit in the closet. Right. So I, I think that was a solid idea, but I don't think the, the model worked because I think there was an, an eventually, if not maybe the first time, first month or second month, they're going to want to go to the store. I want to try them on, especially if they get shoes and they go out, oh, they didn't really fit. I got to send them back. Right. Right. So that was my first issue. But when I asked them, did you talk to consumers? Did you test this? How did you test this model out? They go, oh, yeah, we, we did market research. I said, great. I mean, how many, how, yeah, how did you tell do me. that? They said, yeah, I talked to mom, my aunt, my sister, her friends, and everybody said it was fantastic. So I said, basically you talked to family members and friends and they all said it was wonderful. Yes. Okay. Did you talk to anybody outside of family and friends? No. <laughs> okay. I said, well, I, I would highly advise that you do that because here's why. People that don't love you. <laughs> yeah. People that don't love you and they didn't. Uh. And then they took what minimal budget that they had and hired a, a high-end fashion PR firm out of New York and ate up the budget really fast. And the model unfortunately did what I thought it would do and it just didn't work. And six, seven months later, they were closed. Mm. Now, would it have worked if they had followed some of my recommendations? Maybe. Uh, who, know, who knows? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. <laughs> yeah, but, but to your point, you got you to gotta go to the source. You, you, got, you have to seek that information out. You can't take it lightly. You can't half-ass it like we were talking about earlier. You can't just dip your toe in the water. You got to jump in to your customer hot tub. I mean, that sounds comfortable. A hot yeah. tub full of customers? Yeah. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but, you know, as, as, as entrepreneurs and, and people that are starting businesses, and, I, and again, I've been guilty of this myself, we fall in love, right? I use yeah. the, the, the broad we. We fall in love with our idea. And, and, and I'll actually pick on uh, myself in the, in the action sports industry. So when I created a company called board track, which was a, a market research company in the action sports industry. But prior to that, sounds like nine, a good idea. <laughs> nine years, I, I was an outside researcher for Pacific Sunwear, which if you know them, they're a large clothing retailer catering yep. to, you know, the, 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 12 or 14 to 24 year old marketplace. And we would travel around the country. And at that point in time, we were looking at a lot of upcoming skateboard companies and surf companies. And we'd talk to kids and, and find out about the brands or perceptions, what they would buy, blah, blah, blah. How'd you but, get them to talk to you? Were you? Did you, did you have like a hat on backwards? No, no. Um, you dressed like IBM. Hello, child. Come. No, 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 no. But you know, polo shirt or sometimes a t-shirt, but yeah. I had to keep, you know, an authority level, but not, yeah. you know, not that level. And I, and I, and I would just go in and, and just be very relaxed and we'd feed them pizza. And, and another, <laughs> there you go. Sold. Another, another trick I use, I used to, <laughs> I put them up, give them candy, keep nice. them, keep them high. Right. So about hour in, we feed them some M&Ms or whatever. So they, the sugar level would come back up. Only backfired on me once. Um, where I had to actually shut the group down because they all went, they got way sugar high and they were just going crazy. So I really? Had to, I had to close the group. Yeah, it was totally out of control. How old but, was everyone? 
Uh, they were on average 14 to Got 17. it. So you just had a bunch of teens in there and you gave them yeah. all sugar and they just went goob- goofy. But they loved it because they got to see clothes that nobody else had seen before. Oh, yeah. Good call. Because right? it was all yeah. about, you know, what's coming up, what's hot, that kind of stuff. Anyway, so behind the focus group glass used to be guys from like Quicksilver and Hurley and Nike. And, and so I got to talk to them and they were like, man, if there was, we wish there was more research in this industry. You know, we see skateboarding and sort of, they're really starting yeah. to boom. And, but nobody's really doing research, not the trade magazines, nobody. And, and so it, I had this idea. It's like, man, I, hey, I've been doing all this. I know I've got all this insight. So I'm going to create this company called Board Track. So Board was surfboard, skateboard, right? Yep. Uh, snowboard and tracking was the tracking studies. So when I launched this study, I launched it following a similar pattern that we had done with, with PacSun in the same cities. Mm. So 2000 people, but it was more general consumer. Mm-hmm. And then I would drill down and extrapolate skateboarding, for example. Okay. So I might talk to 2000 people, but maybe there was only 200 skateboarders in it. And we, you know, we'd profile and, yeah. and, and so the study was expensive and some of the brands, but the big brands bought it, right. The swatches and the OPs and the, um, yeah. you know, the whatever, but the skateboarding brands weren't buying it. So I was sitting in a, no. a meeting with one of the skateboard companies and showing them. And, and this, and this is what happened. He said, look at until you talk to 2000 skateboarders, I'm not interested. And so they all got up and left But the CFO came over to me and said, look at, I love what you're doing, but they're right to be in this industry. You have to really just focus on the endemic, not, not the non-endemic, right? So people who don't skateboard and trying to figure out but work the other way out. And I said, well, that's in our business plan, but not for a couple more years. And he said, if you really want to be the guy in this industry, you got to pivot. So I talked to my partner at the time. We literally shut down and stopped the big national studies, general consumer. Yeah. Because I was competing with other brands and focused strictly on surfing, skating, and snowboarding. Wow. And so that's what we did. We had 2,000, you know, 1,500, and we were able to really drill down but I had fallen in love with what I had done so much that I, it was, it was a struggle to, it's like, how can you not see it? And, you know, I'm arguing my points and how can you not see this information is valuable? And, and we'd argue back and forth. Well, it is valuable. It's just not valuable to us because I need skateboarding. I need to know about the skateboarder itself. And so we pivoted and started doing that. And it took a few years. The very first time I presented in the skateboarding industry, there was uh, at the, one of the major major shows. It was the first seminar they they had done in years because they typically have failed. So they did it at lunchtime. They offered a free lunch. I still don't know today to this date if it was the free lunch or me that brought all these people. And there was about five hundred people in this room. No kidding. But all sitting, arms crossed, legs out. These naysayers looking at me, going, "Who in the hell is this guy going to tell right. me about my industry, man?" And I could see it on their faces. And, and so a lot of skepticism, but then I started to wear them down because things I would say were starting to come true. And mm-hmm. I think that for me, the, the big aha that I had something is one of the major skateboard brands, a shoe company, ran a big ad about six months into, into my studies in the, the, the major trade magazine and said, Board Track said, you know, XYZ is number one in the industry. Mm, and that was a yeah. trigger point. Now everybody wanted to find out where they stood in my, my brand surveys and 
dig sure. into it. And so that, that company went about 13 years. Wow. And, and it, it really changed. And eventually uh, I, I sold it, but then I came back to help the people that bought it because it started to fall. And, and it really, when it got into the recession in 2010, 2011, is it really when they decided to shut it down because they weren't spending money on research. They were, you know, were barely staying afloat. Right. They were having all sorts of other problems. So the people that owned it said, you know, we're just going to, we're going to kill it. And uh, the trade magazines actually called me back in 14, 15, and 16, and I helped them uh, do it internally. And oh, then, cool. And then, just, you know, that's, I just don't want to play in that industry anymore. So I'll, that's a long-winded story. I, I, I forgot where I was going with it, but it was about falling in love with your own product because I would always have a hard time believing that people would not believe in it and that we were always right in the way we were doing things. So I was stubborn, and it took a while for me to say, okay, quit thinking what you think is the best. You know, frankly, I don't skateboard, I don't surf, and I don't snowboard. So I'm talking to all the people that do. So you've got to understand who who their who the consumers are, which I'm talking to, but you have stunt the people that I'm selling to and understand their needs and wants and make those changes in the way we would market to them. And I think that's what helped propel the, the brand to be successful. Such a good point about yeah, whether it's ego or whatever it is, to just take a set of biases that you may love your thing or you may hate it, but people may like it. And 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 if you're not the customer, then you know you need to hold off your your judgment on it. Tell, tell me though, why did you pick why did you pick boards? Was it just a market opportunity that you you spent years hanging out with these cool guys and gals? Like interesting, cool action sports, and yet you don't do it yourself. Was there well, was that, that, that time at Pat? Pacific Sunwear. I thought it was really cool industry, and I really yeah. I enjoyed that that environment. Yeah. And, and after all those years, kind of felt ingrained with it. So, but as a business person and a marketer myself, when I heard them say, "We wish there is not there's a gap in the market," and I went, "There's a gap. There's an opportunity gap here. Nobody has done this." And actually, the story is in in the early '80s, there was a guy. Uh, his name was uh, Steve Sakamoto used to walk up and down the beach in California and he would interview people and he put together a report called uh, beach beach report, beach survey or something like that. And that was the research in the industry. But when he passed away, there would be from like, whatever the, there was like a three or four or five year gap. And then one of the magazines, I think it was surfing, tried to do a similar study and they, and they actually kind of followed my original model, but it was really expensive. I mean, it cost mm. a lot of money to produce right. and it was really expensive. It was like six or $7,000 a report. Well, this industry wasn't going to buy it. I already, you know, I proved that with myself, but, and so they sold like three or four or five of them and they stopped doing them. Okay. It was 10 years later when I came with mine. Mm. So, there's, so the industry is, is kind of trugging along and it was just when I was getting involved that it just started to really make that upswing with you know millions of uh, people skateboarding and stuff like that and surfing and and so looking at those trends I mean the average so you know one of the interesting parts is the average life cycle of a skateboarder was only 10 years they okay. got in around let's say 12 13 14 and around 16 or 17 they they stopped skateboarding as often they stopped buying the equipment well, there was a real reason why it's because they started driving 
Oh yeah. Right. So there's because skateboarding, we, we see skateboarding, we see people doing tricks and you know, the skate parks. Yeah. But skateboarding in, in a lot, a lot of areas and for most is also a, a form of transportation. Yeah. Right. So you don't need transportation anymore. So that so a lot of that impacted what was going on. But then we would also now start seeing an upswing in surfing and snowboarding. Why? Because they could get in their cars and they could drive to the mountain or they could drive to the beach. Interesting. Right. And so obviously in the Midwest, there's no beaches. So obviously surfing is not really big, but but in certain places snowboarding would be. So so we were able to track all that that interesting data. So that was for me, that was the cool part. It was about the nuances of the information. And I'm a marketing geek, right? I'm a research geek. So yeah. really digging into that data and being able to say, here's how the, where the brands lie. And so the reports and, and presentations we used to give were pretty data loaded. People used to come and just film my stuff, getting all this free information. Um, and, uh, but, but it started to become and became valuable to them. As a matter of fact, my relationship with, with one of the big, big brands was nothing more than helping them figure out size of market. Oh, was yeah. It wasn't worth it for us to play in. We used to meet with one of the big um, uh, investment companies who would fly in once a quarter and we'd meet with them. And I'm not going to say their name, but we'd meet them sure. behind with them behind closed doors and give them updates because they were looking for acquisitions and investment opportunities. And so sure. they'd always say, who are the big brands? Who's coming? You know, what yeah. are the are they? that kind of stuff. So it was really cool. It, it, it became a real marketing engine. And that also led to consulting projects for us. When I sold my advertising agency, I took BoardTrack out of the deal and then used BoardTrack to help generate, uh, you know, new, new clients for the agency. So we had several of the, the, the action sports industry folks became clients of the ad agency. Um, so, so it, it was a, it was a pretty ingrained in, in my personality mm -hmm. uh, who I was for a very long period of time. That's a, the other thing that happens sometimes, right? We, we become the brand, we become who we're and, and that, you know, as an ad agency guy, we worked for a lot of different companies, but that was my single product, if you will. And so I kind of became that person. People knew me by that. And, right. and uh, so, and, you know, and I got rid of, and I let that go and, you know, and then eventually saw it die. It, it, it was, it was sad. <laughs> it was who I was for a very long period of time. So anyway, so rambling on. <laughs> yeah, no, that's what we do here. I mean, let's just ramble. You know, I did have a question for you though. Um, you, you experience these different trends and I think sometimes I'm sort of narrowly focused, but you've experienced these trends, you've paid attention, you were doing research during things that are happening anything you equate to nowadays and has it given you an insight into, you know, how do markets react to things like this? We're all stuck inside. Can we skateboard? Can we, but even, even at the larger, you know, world itself, any, any thoughts? Yeah. You know, it, it's interesting in, in any downturn that I've experienced or any business that starts to struggle. The first, literally one of the first things they do is they cut marketing. Yeah. Right. Because they, they see it as an expense and not an investment. So you out there listening, it's an investment in your future, not just an expense because marketing and, and salespeople will argue this point, but marketing and sales, but marketing really is a growth engine, right? Yeah. Because it can create a, a broader awareness. It can do a lot of things to help drive and make sales more efficient. 
But when you cut that out and people stop seeing you and knowing who you are or you even exist, it creates issues. And so what we saw in this current pandemic is companies immediately started cutting, right? Laying off people, cutting their marketing budgets. So it was all about preserving cash. Not a bad strategy, but it's not the strategy, right? So they were reactionary. Instead of stepping back, and this is my personal opinion of in the broad sense of now, now I've got some cash. Now I need to step back in and work on the business. So what's the best strategies? So one of the things that we that we saw is really a balance between operational efficiencies and marketing investment. So I actually I wrote an article recently on this very topic about about what happened in you know in the in the 1918 pandemic, the Spanish flu, what happened in in the 80s recession, the 90s recession, then the 2000 recessions, and what what happened to companies that just cut versus what happened to companies that made investments and what happened with companies that get a balance. What we saw is that those companies that had a balance between operations and marketing did really well post-recession. And so they continue to invest. I mean, I'm saying they went out and spent, you know, their typical budget, but what they didn't do is just eliminate it. Why? Because they, even if they weren't selling product, they still wanted to maintain an awareness you know, they changed their messaging. So messaging, it, you know, as we've probably seen and heard a million times during this, people aren't trying to sell you. They're trying to say, we're here for you, right? So right. they're changing their messaging strategy. So yep. maybe it's, we're here for you, we're here for you, we're here for you. And oh, by the way, do you need our product? So it isn't just, you need my product, you need my product, because people aren't paying attention. That gets back to understanding the needs and wants of the customer, which is one of the other things we started talking about earlier that I, I tell businesses, if you're, you should be more than ever talking to your customers. You don't know what kind of panic you know, your best customer is in, right? And it may not just be that, maybe, maybe it's just not the guy in the IT department, it's also the marketing person and the CFO and the CEO, right? right. So you look at multiple contacts within an organization, which a lot of businesses don't do, right? They sell to the IT guy, they sell to purchasing, they sell to, to the CFO, and they forget that other people make decisions. And so that could, you know, those, that's another whole different strategy is how do you nurture multiple people within an organization? So if your best contact leaves, you also don't lose the business. When I had my ad agency, that's typically when we found we would lose business is because our marketing contact would change jobs. Sure. A new guy would come in, he'd bring his agency in, right? But if we had good relationships with the CEO or somebody else, that would have been a much more difficult situation. So, so that, that article actually is on my, on my uh, website. Yeah. It's called, it's called Lessons Learned. Okay. Uh, it, I, it's, it's pretty in-depth. I kind of got carried away, but I felt it was important to really present the case of why people should really think this through and give some advice in there. But, but ultimately, it, it, history shows us, right? We can learn from history. Absolutely. Right? And, and, whether, and even if your own history inside. I have a client knows after 30 years that 30% or 33% of all the proposals they put out will be, will be closed. They'll, they'll sell. Okay. Which ones? We don't know, right? Because they could have a million-dollar proposal. They could have a $5,000 proposal. Right. Couldn't say which ones are going to sell. It just says, on average, they sell. They'll close 33% of all their proposals. Right. Well, that statistic doesn't necessarily work in this environment based on the nature of the business mm -hmm. that they're in, right? So you need to scale back. If they just go, well, we're going to close 33%, we'll continue to chug away. Well, now if you want to get two, 
or three proposals because of the pandemic, you're in trouble. So how do you pivot? And so by understanding your customers, you can go to your, their customers, for example, and say, look, at, we know times have changed. We know you're not going to be buying much. Do you have other needs? Do you have things that are going on? Can we refurbish what you already have? And look for those opportunities because we will come out of this and you need to make sure your customers are happy. So how do we make sure that you're happy in order to make your customers happy? Right. They don't ever actually make that phone call. They'll never know. Right? Yeah, you won't. And you so might just, take actions, you know, that might help that or might not. Yeah, exactly. It might be irrelevant in what you're doing and you're just barking up the wrong tree. You think you're doing the right thing, but they don't care because they got other issues that you don't know about because you've right. never taken the time to talk to them. Right, right. Huh. What do you see coming around the bend? Do you see any positives coming out of marketing these days? I know we're all kind of focused on the here and now, being stuck inside or stuck wherever we're at. Do you see anything coming around the bend that we should there's some opportunities coming around that we should keep keep in mind? Sure. I think there's probably plenty of opportunities. Mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to sound like a broken record, but if you're not keeping your finger on the pulse of the market right now, you don't know. So unless you're going to go out and change your entire product line mm -hmm. and whatever your product or service happens to be, you need to look for those opportunities. And part of that could be watching what your competitors are doing. Sure. I don't mean to be opportunistic, but if your competitor just laid off a bunch of people, pretty much indication they're in trouble. Sure. So who do they sell? Do they have a big customer that you'd like to get? Right. Do they have a, 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 a great salesperson that they just let go because they couldn't afford them anymore? Maybe there's an opportunity to pick them up. But I think if we look at the trends and, and, and they're all there, they're published mm -hmm. on a regular basis of what industries are still thriving right now? Do you have something you can start to sell and market within those industries or match something? And then look at the predictions of how it's gonna work. Do I think that you know, states are starting to let people go to restaurants and do all those things? Do I think there's gonna be big gatherings in the next 30, 60, 90 days? I don't. Right. Even, even if they open up, I think that there's a, there'll still be a contingency of people that will be hesitant. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and so how can you fulfill a need if people are hesitant to go to a sporting event, for example, or right. how can you offer something? So I think it's really just digging in and understanding and, and, you know, maybe there's acquisition opportunities, right? So companies that have gotten themselves into trouble, Hey, you want to pick up a new product line? You could create one that it might take a couple of years to roll it out versus buying one. Right. And, you know, so I think that we're going to see that come back. I think there, I, I think there's going to be a hesitancy in the fall when, when flu season hit, kicks up again. Mm -hmm. All right. So I think we're in this for a while. And so how do you adjust and modify your business to prepare for the future? Right. Right. Everybody's surviving today, mm -hmm. but, and some companies are thriving. So, but, you know, based on your product line, based on your services, you know, what are those? And, and I recommend a lot is let's, let's do scenario planning. Yeah. What if, what if this happens, what would be our, our strategy? What if this happens, what would be our strategy? And so you basically map this out. Let's, you know, you know, back to marketing is like, you know, marketing is warfare, right? If there's books that, that make those correlations and this mm. really is, you're, you're doing strategic planning and what if scenarios that if this happens or that happens, you know, what's your reaction? It's right. like crisis management planning. 
nobody right. planned for a pandemic, right? They planned for food poisoning or, mm-hmm. you know, uh, getting bad aspirins or whatever it happened to be, right? And you sure, look at all sure. the, kind of the natural crises that have happened in the PR firms that jumped in to handle the crisis. Nobody planned for this. And so they probably will in the future. But if you take that kind of same strategy and, and put it into what ifs in your marketing and your business scenario, again, you can start to create. So if you start to see something go in one direction or the other, you've already got some kind of established plan, if you will, in direction. So as opposed to saying, oh man, look, if there's a shift, but now we got to start reacting. And if I planned and you didn't, mm-hmm. chances are I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bury you. That's true. So people so need to be true. really strategic now to plan for the future. I don't know what, what the next wave is going to be. We know, you know, I, I think what we're doing today on, on this uh, visual podcast mm-hmm. and Zoom meetings, I've been on, I can't even tell you how many Zoom meetings I've been on with 50. <laughs> Me too. People, right? Yeah. And, and what's going to happen there is companies are going to say, well, my people were productive during this time. We, we already know or studies are coming out that people are already saying, you know, they're seeing productivity increase by people yeah. being at home. So am I going to take you and put you back in a high rise building that's costing me, you know, $750 a square foot? All right. right. I'm going to think twice about it. Right. Versus I can leave you home. You're going to be happier. You're already showing me you can be more productive. And so I think that it could am- impact the real estate industry, commercial real estate industry, certainly mm-hmm. the travel industry. Why am I going to hop on a plane to go see a customer in New York? I can just dial them up anytime I want. I'll do a quarterly visit, not a monthly visit. Right. Right. So I, I think we're going to see some major shifts in the way business is conducted. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Poor Delta. I was looking at their stock. I'm like, oh, you guys. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm a fan, I actually, but I want them to do better. Yeah. I actually bought some the other day uh, on a whim. And based on something I read and it went up and I was like, okay. And then I woke up yesterday and it was, it was down and it hit my threshold. So I sold it. Um, oh yeah. 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 So, you know, those are kind of like just kind of some mad money. If just kind of, yeah, right. I've, I've had some good luck with some and not so good luck with others. Right. Right. Something this becomes a finance show. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that's awesome. But the one I made a bunch of money on was uh, Peloton. Actually. Oh, well, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, that was that was great. People can't and I own go to a the Pel- gym. I bought a Peloton. I can't go to the gym, and and we actually canceled our gym membership because yeah. we were going to the gym to ride spin bikes. Yeah. And now we have one here, so I don't need to go to the gym to do that. And and uh, so yeah, so you know, again, there's a, there's an example of looking at the market. Yep. Whether you know that's an investment, but you know, if we look at what's happened with Zoom and you know the webinar packages and the seminar packages and the home exercise equipment, home delivery, um, you know, those are, are trending now. Now, can they carry that? Have they now become disruptive? You know, when people now go back to the gym, you know, will Peloton sales and those kinds of home equipment, will they dip or they continue? Hmm. People are still on, yeah, I'm not going to go to the gym. I, I saw a commercial today talking about getting back to business or maybe it was on the news show and they're in a gym and everybody's spraying and down. Well, you spray it once. That's great. But now I've just sweated. I don't, you know, person be just before me. I don't know what they had. Did you clean it You know, before I got on it? So I think there's going to be a lot of those questions that people are going to have for a while. And then there's yeah. those groups of people that don't care. Yeah. And then the question really is like, what's the long term too? Because I, you know, give people enough time after um, 
9-11 and they're flying again, you know, um, how long after this thing and may not be right away. Are people not, can we hug each other at some point? Are we going to shake yeah. hands at a conference, you know? Um, well, we've kind of proven thing. resilient and 9-11 yeah. is a great example. I mean, people did not want to fly for a long time. Yeah. Now we don't think twice about it. Right. But now, you know, uh, we're just talking to some friends of ours who actually hopped on a plane to New York. They were, you know, like two of 10 or 15 people on the entire plane. Jeez. So Jeez. some people are doing it, right? You're looking at airports that are completely empty or, or like you said, the airline stocks that are just going to the, down the toilet. Right. But, you know, we'll... It just, I think just nature that we will come out of this, we will get comfortable yep. and we'll start to get back to hitting on planes and cruise ships. And, yep. you know, the cruise ships uh, just pushed out again to August, some in July, August, um, before they're going to start trying to cruise again. It's interesting. I, my family, we all went on one right before this happened. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it hadn't been, it wasn't yet a big deal. It was kind of like we'd hear, heard things in China and they had restricted people traveling to Asia, not getting on the boat. But, um, but yeah, thinking about it now, it's like, wow, we really snuck one in there before. Well, uh, there's always this. been like, even with it, I think part of it was, uh, uh, yeah, my perceptions, the way some of them handled it, right? They tried yeah. to hide it. Like when people would, you know, a few years back, the norovirus on cruise ships, right? So what do they do? You walk in, you, you cruise, right? You're washing your hands constantly and, and doing yeah. stuff and, right? You're taking care of yourself. When uh, I did a, a, a cruise, I guess it was maybe five years ago, and I was in, in one of our ports was Turkey. And it was, and on the cruise, we, we had the, the TV was on and the new watching the news. And it was always about ISIS, 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 ISIS. Jeez. And it was just as they were really building up. And so we were probably within months of being the last in this particular line, getting into Istanbul and Ephesus, right? Cause they started pulling out because that's where things were going on. It was getting up, be a hotbed. And so forget the virus, the pandemic, right? We were looking at something else that was going on in the world yeah. that was scaring us about, you know, being in that part of the world. Right. And so I, 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 but you know, two years later, what did I do? I hopped on a cruise ship and went, <laughs> went right back to that, you know, that area of the, of the world. So, um, I, I, we're resilient people. We've shown yeah. that over the years and over the centuries and, and this probably won't be the last time this happens and maybe not our lifetime, but others. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And, uh, yeah, these things happen. We it's like how we deal with them over time, you know, short term, middle term, long term, that kind of thing. Take us back to like little Angelo days. You know, did, did you always <laughs> know you're gonna be a marketer and and one of the, a cool one at that because you're hanging out with skateboarders and surfers and you know, what well, was it like? Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in uh, upstate New York, so the farthest from a place of being cool, <laughs> right? Um, and a very small town. And, uh, you know, a great place to grow up. I didn't well, want to live Oswego? There. Did you grow up in Oswego? Oswego, yeah. So I've been there, that, the lake. I've been on that lake yeah. and I've had some family. Some, yeah, it's a cool it's place. It's a great lake. It was a historical fort. I mean, it was, you know, as a kid, somebody starts town to tell you history. You're going, I, you know, I don't really care. Yeah, but exactly. It, but, there, but the town itself actually is very historical. It, it used to have three forts back no in kidding. the Revolutionary War days. And, you know, the British would come down the St. Lawrence and try to go down the Oswego River to Albany. And there were these three forts that, you know, basically would blow them out of the water. And they were 
two, they were all destroyed at various times and only uh, Fort Ontario was the one that kept being rebuilt and the final rebuild was with, with uh, bricks and stone and so wow, they, I'm could, looking they, at they it. couldn't burn them down anymore. Uh, but it played a role in the Revolutionary War, played a role in the Civil War and uh, World War II for sure, and maybe some others, the training bases and things like that. But there's a, it, it, we're going to, I'm off on history, but yeah, it's all cool. A, a, a little known story, and, and it's called Haven. But in World War II, Roosevelt allowed about 2,000 Jewish immigrants to come to the United States. And to escape, you know, the Nazi. Yeah. Government. Wow. When they hit New York, what they did is they shipped them all to Oswego no and then basically interned and, and them, put them in behind fences to, to keep them corralled, if you will. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not telling the story exactly right. So, so there's where these Jewish immigrants in my hometown in the fort, the whole area was called the fort. There was a fort, but we called it the fort. And my parents later in life would tell us stories how they used to go down as kids and talk to them and bring them food. And now as a child myself, I never knew that because none of that existed. There were armories down there and, you know, other things that said there was, you know, military, but I never knew any of this until much later in life, probably in the last 10 or 15 years. Right. There's a book called Haven that talks about it. And now there's a museum there that talks about it, but it was wow. just one of those really interesting things that happened in, in the hometown that nobody ever knew. But, you know, like I said, Lake Ontario is huge. I grew up fishing. I, yeah. I was only a couple, half a mile off the lake. So fishing and swimming every day. Um, I, my, a lot of my friends had snowmobiles. So we were snow, snowmobiling in the wintertime. My dad was a plumber and he put me to work very early in life, uh, 12, 13, doing odd jobs. Or he used to make me collect money, which was terrifying as a kid. You knock on somebody's door and say, hey, I'm ready to collect, you know, $14 for a plumbing job kind of thing. Wow. And, uh, and I was probably more reserved and shy as a kid, not around my friends, but in public with groups of people. I, I sure. could never, I could never do what we're doing today. You know, when I was 15 or 16 years old, but over time, um, I knew I didn't want to be a plumber. Mm. And so I, I loved actually the movie industry. I love movies. And so I thought, Hey, that might be a cool thing. And so I didn't, since I was fearful, of course, I never dreamed of even becoming an actor, but behind the scenes was something different. And so as I started to get into school, I started looking at marketing and communications and film. And so I was kind of marrying that kind of passion that I had with the idea of a business aspect of that. Right. Um, and then I, and then, uh, so when I came to California after graduation, I went to school in Europe as well. And, but when I came to California, um, I came here because I had met at the time the director of marketing of Disneyland. Really? Said, yeah. So he was a friend of my sister's. He was a husband of my friend of my sister's. So he said, come on out. I went out there uh, my senior year of college and I met with him and he said, uh, great. When you graduate, you come out and I'll take care of you. Now I'm an Italian from New York. So when you say I'll take care of you, it, it means a job. Right. Well, apparently not in California. Oh, so geez. I came out here and he said, let me write some names down for you. Give these people a call. Just tell them I, I said, you know, I referred you. Well, it's okay. So I went with optimism and turned out to be that that meant absolutely nothing. So 
you know, I, I was chasing uh, the dream to get into Hollywood. And, and well, hey, I'm with you on that, the, the Italian thing. Like, I'll take care of you means, you know, I'll throw you in the guest room. We'll get you a job over here at Disneyland and, uh, and I'll be your mentor and your guide as well. That's taking yeah, care I, of somebody. Yeah, you know, like, yeah exactly. I'll give you, a, I'll give you a list of names, you bum. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's what I thought. Jeez. So long story short, um, uh, another friend of my sister's owned an advertising agency. And, and uh, so he said, come on down. I'll, you know, I'm going to have a, uh, I need some marketing help. I, I'll train you. I'll take care of nice. you. And so I ended up going down there and he started working with me in the media industry. And then he had some commercial work. And so I got a little taste of all that. And, and then I, and then about four years, five years, maybe four years in, I actually quit and started a film production company with some friends. Oh, wow. And uh, uh, it lasted eight months. And for was a while, it a fun it was eight beginning. months? In the beginning, because <laughs> once we got going, we were working all the time, but not, but not even working. I was working maybe 10 days a month and making more money than I had made. Wow. Um, but then they got, they were older than me, about 20 years older, and they started losing interest. They were just, now they started waiting for the jobs to roll and they weren't being as aggressive. And yeah. anyway, the thing imploded eight, nine months into it. And um, so that was a big lesson. I learned a lot about business running a business, what it took. Um, from there, actually, I tried to, I worked with a friend of mine who was a copywriter and we started writing uh, TV scripts, trying to sell some TV to, to the movie, uh, to, to the networks. And we got one pretty far, but it was expensive. It had multiple set locations and at oh. the time that they were, they were kind of watching their budgets. And so it didn't go anywhere. Now it wouldn't even make any sense because it was about the banking industry and, 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 and uh, now people, you know, it was called banker's hours, right? Hmm. It was a time when bankers used to go home at two or three o'clock in the afternoon, the banks would shut down. And now of course that doesn't exist anymore. Right. So the uh, so concept doesn't work anymore today, but it was actually a pretty funny show. We, we were after, um, uh, pursued it for a long time, but then uh -huh. I went back to the advertising business and, and then eventually went corporate side and then, started jumping back and forth between agency work and corporate side and eventually yeah. decided that why am I doing it for other people? I can do it for myself and started a consulting firm working with advertising agencies. Nice. And then about three or four years into that, I converted it to a full service advertising agency. And 10 years later, I sold that and, and then worked for another firm. Uh, the people that bought us for about eight years. And then just as they're, uh, 2008, 2009 recession was coming in. They decided to, uh, to, our lease was coming up and they decided to preserve some cash and move us to the corporate headquarters. And a bunch of us decided not to move. Got it. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So Man. that's my, that's my life in a really short period of time. And, and, and I've actually podcasted on my early days with my dad and my dad was a plumber. So the podcast is called, um, lessons learned from the, number one plumber in the number two industry what's the number one industry the, the number one plumber in the yep. number two industry you get it oh gosh i get it <laughs> <laughs> oh gosh totally get it yeah i've been told most, most, most women don't get it <laughs> everyone got it before me i'm sure um <laughs> 
I love that. So you, you like podcasted with your dad and you talked about the old days well, and things. You guys well, no, my, my, my dad has passed, but I, I okay. told the story about the, the business lessons I felt he was teaching me real yeah. or, you know, I don't know, maybe they weren't, but I, I've equated different things that he did, like going out and collecting money, mm -hmm. right? Show me the value of what a dollar meant. Show me the, that you can be in business, but if you can't get the money, then you're out of business, That's right? That's true. Um, when he expanded outside of his comfort zone. So he's a plumber. Now he starts a restaurant. Huh. So, so the lesson I took away was, you know, stay in your lane. If you're going to, if you're going to move into new markets and, and go on beyond uh, your business acumen, if you will, you better have the people yeah. that can help you do it. If you want to invest, but my dad invested himself. So his plumbing business was suffering while he was off trying to be a restaurant tour. Mm. and he had partners and they all, you know, high five in each other as many partners do and they love each other. And, and then six, seven months, about a year into it, I guess it really was, you know, they were fighting tooth and nail people were quitting being bought out and, you know, it was the whole thing imploded. Uh, at one time he, he expanded too quickly and he took on these giant jobs, which took him out of his hometown and traveled around New York state doing really well, making a lot of money. But when those two contracts end and he came back, his, his business had gone, you know, had suffered because they didn't want to work with the guy that was there helping the helper. They wanted my father. So yeah. and they couldn't get a hold of him. They couldn't see him right there with no cell phones or anything like that. So his business suffered and people took advantage of that. And we talked about that earlier, right? Watch what your competition's doing. Mm -hmm. If they're not servicing the market or they got issues, it creates an opportunity gap. Well, my dad created an opportunity gap for his customer, for his competitors to steal his customers. And it took him a while to, to get him back. Why? Because he was off pursuing and to the next growth level, but he didn't work, didn't work on the business enough to know what was going to happen when he left. So those are the kind of stories I tell. Yeah. But I, I equate them to business, which has led me to work on a new book, um, uh, you know, on that, you know, lessons learned kind of thing. So wow. it's, so I'm trying to tell those stories of my father and things that he had me do that I probably didn't like. And I know we had a lot of arguments about them, but you know, Many years later, I can say, okay, that made sense. It's about perseverance, about yeah. having passion for something. It's about sticking to it when you want to quit, knowing that times are hard and, you know, you can throw up your hands and give it all up. But if you really right. want it, you got to figure out a way to work through it. So a lot of those kinds of stories that are, that are important to me that, that I think that people can relate to and, and they're fun. I mean, my dad was a, was a card. I talk about his promotion. He, his one of his biggest promotional ideas was to, to be in a parade in the hometown really? parade. So you imagine you're 16 or 17 years old and you're on main street and here comes the parade on the 4th of July. And here comes your dad riding on a toilet. Oh gosh. <laughs> you know? And I think his sign was something like, uh, uh, what do you say? Well, his, one of his slogans used to be your shit's my bread and butter. I'm not sure he had that on his toilet, but he had like these little sayings all along that he would use. And so then the next 4th of July, it was a toilet and a shower. And then he eventually had a tub and, you know, and people laughed and screamed and, you know, but as a kid, you're going, oh my God, my dad's riding on a toilet, but he was promoting his business. And so, you know, again, right. just those kinds of things that about promotion and being aware. And, and, and when my dad had passed, one of the things that, we we heard from people was how giving he was 
you know. Mm. And I remember as a kid, we'd, we'd ride around and he, he'd say, I got to go stop here for a minute. And he'd get out. And I remember him take, picking up like baskets or boxes of food and taking food into people's houses and stuff. And I'd say, what was that? And he goes, oh, I just, I was just talking to somebody. You don't worry about it. Mm-hmm. What do I know? I'm a kid. Well, it turned out to be he was always making sure that people didn't go hungry and taking care of folks. Really? And we never knew that until, you know, obviously he passed when people would tell these stories. Uh, yeah. So anyway. Well, you know, I get a question uh, related to that. Um, you know, I'd like to ask everyone this question and you're writing a book on it. So this probably might be hard to boil it down. But if you were to go in a time machine, hypothetically, I may have one here in Nashville, New Hampshire. Um, if you could go in there and give advice to yourself right after you graduated school um, or, or really beginning of your career, wherever you want to drop back in time to and talk to yourself, what kind of things would you tell yourself? You, maybe you don't have time to, you, you could pass the book to somebody. <laughs> maybe yeah, if, yeah. If, ma- if matter can come back with you, you can just pass the book off. But what kind of things would you, would you tell well, yourself? I, I would tell myself not to be so stubborn. Okay. And to, and to listen and accept advice. Um, in my, my early days, uh, I, I tended to believe I was right all the time and in stepping back and saying, okay, I, I want to go in this direction, but do I really have a clear path? Am I really passionate about what I'm, what I'm thinking about doing? You know, will I be persistent to follow through? Right. And, and so many times and that, you know, you'd have a great idea. And, and again, for me, I'd go down this path and then I'd hit a bump and I go, okay, screw that. I'm going to something else. So I used to play right. music, used to be in bands all the time. And at one point in time, we had an opportunity to record. We were being solicited to, to do some recording and half of the band just refused to do it because they were again, That's- older, they were older guys than me. They were, we were playing fifties music and they were about, 10 to 15 years older and I was a young guy. I didn't even know what I might have to listen to records. I didn't know what this music was, but we had an opportunity to uh, play. And it was during like when Stray Cats was, was playing. I don't know if you remember that band, but you mm-hmm. know, they really kind of made fifties really popular for a cool. while in the, in the, in the, I think it was late eighties, maybe early nineties. And so we had some people that wanted to record us. And so we fought over that. And, and the, those that thought, us that wanted to do it just acquiesced and said, forget it. Instead of saying, no, no, this is something we really want to do. And if you don't want to do it, we'll find somebody else. Right. So, right. so it was a dream to not to be famous, but Hey, that would be really cool as a way to make a living. Let it go. Had some ideas in, in, um, in, in marketing that I thought would be a great program, but you know, it became difficult to do. And I didn't want to right. put the energy in. Right. He, he, so even writing a book, I mean, it takes time, it takes, energy, yeah. it takes dedication and passion. And, you know, I have another book sitting on the floor here that's 100 or 120 pages in, and it's been sitting there for six months because you know, I think I've got other things better to do. Mm-hmm. Yet I, I'm passionate about it, but I haven't been persistent. Yeah. So, so I, think, I, I think that would be, and the other thing I'd, I would tell myself is don't do too many things at the same time. My okay. wife harps on me all the time about that. Is it's not a new trade; it's a trade I've had, right? So you're trying to juggle too many things. So you're how's that saying? You're I, I forget the first part, but basically you're a, a master of none. I forget what the first part. Sure, is. yeah, the jack of all trades, right? Jack yeah. of all trades, right? Master of none. So I really think is is about becoming an expert. So for me, the the thing I've done is really focused on understanding my craft. 
not necessarily in a specific industry, but the craft itself, which has allowed me to be a consultant and work in multiple industries and not trying to, to do too many things and knowing my limitations. Yeah. You know, can I develop a strategic plan, a social media and digital marketing plan? Absolutely. Could I implement it? Yeah. If I probably did a lot of work and figured things out, do I want to? And is that a good use of, of me? No. So why go do that? Right. It's like when I created my ad agency, I had marketing, media, market research, strategic planning, uh, PR, but no creative. All my creative partners were all outsourced. Mm-hmm. And the reason was I felt that, that based on my client base, it would be better to have access to all these different people as opposed to picking one or two creative people to try to execute across multiple markets. Sure. And, and that was a, a decision that I knew my limitations and what I, mm-hmm. what I wanted to do with the agency. And I, it was a smart decision, but you know, I've worked in others where you partnered up with people and you know, they, they didn't, they also didn't deliver and do the things that they say they were going to do right to cost issues. Right. So I think part of that is about just, you know, thinking things through, not juggling too many things at once. And, um, and you know, if you start something and you, and you believe in it, be persistent to follow it through. Right. Be persistent. Starting a business is not, not a simple task. There's lots of twists and turns and ups and downs, and it's easy to get thrown off or to throw up your hands and say, ah, it just, it's just too hard. Mm-hmm. No, it is hard. If it, it wasn't hard, everybody would have a business. Right. For sure. Yeah. Wow. Good stuff, man. Where can people connect with you if they want to reach out and sure. say hi? Yeah, so the, the best place is LinkedIn. Okay. So I, I do accept 99% of people that connect with me. Um, and also my website, theponzigroup.com, T-H-E-P-O-N-Z-I-G-R-O-U-P.com. So a lot of information there, my philosophies. I have eBooks up there that people can download. Uh, I do a lot of blogging. Uh, the one I talked about earlier, I also have one on tips for working at home. And, uh, you know, all sorts of, uh, on silver bullet, my philosophy on silver bullet. So a lot of things yeah. we talked about today, I have, po- I have, uh, um, uh, blogs up there. I also, my podcast is business growth cafe, and you can find that on any major podcast platform or at the business growth cafe.com or okay. actually on the ponzigroup.com as well. It actually have a feed there. So, um, you can listen or, or catch it in a lot of different places. I also have a YouTube channel that features a lot of the videos um, uh, from my podcast as well. Okay. And that's, that's really the best way to reach. Yeah. That's a, there's a bunch of, bunch of ways in that. And I would, I would encourage people as you're reaching out, don't be a goofy stranger and look like a LinkedIn spammer. Just say, Hey, I heard you on the podcast or, you know, something like that. So the people, so that he's happy to connect with you, not like, okay, am I going to get a pitch in 48 hours from this address? You know, that's interesting. And I know we, we've got to end this, but yeah, there, there's, an, you know, there's automation tools like within LinkedIn, right? So, yeah. hey, you look like a good guy. I got, we got similar connections. Let's connect. And, you know, boom, four, three hours later, 20 minutes later, five minutes later, I get a pitch. And, yeah. And, and, and so Thanks. if you, if, you know, to the audience, if you use those kinds of tools, and I actually do use that tool. What? Is you've got to build the relationship. You can't hit them with a sale, right? And so I look when I see somebody say, you know, we're going to make you a gazillion dollars in your new lead gen strategy. Well, I know that's BS. I've actually tested a few of these and 
and not actually done them, but talked to people. And when I get on the conversations, they, they go, oh, we can't really help you. It's like, mm -hmm. well, you didn't really do research. You just, you're just, you know, you're doing a lead gen thing and you, you've picked me for whatever reason that I came up in your, your, your algorithm, but you didn't bother to, if I, connect, if I connected with you, you didn't bother to actually go look at me before you no. called me. And, and so, so a lot of those now I just go, nope, 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 nope. Because yeah. you know, I know how difficult it is to market a fractional chief marketing officer. I don't sell anything, right? I sell me. I sell my time. I sell my knowledge and my experience. Yeah. I don't have a widget to sell. Yeah. And so, so yeah, think again, back to thinking through. So when I implemented this program actually about 30 days ago, you know, I had a different strategy. It's about building a relationship, understanding okay. your needs and your wants. I don't think I ever actually say, buy me. Buy my stuff. Buy yeah. my stuff, right? I'm just trying to build a relationship, say, hey, what? I know you're, you're probably struggling, like a lot of folks. I've got some, you know, information, free information. Hey, do you want to have a chat? I'll even talk to you. I'm, I just want to be here if you need some, some guidance and some help. If I can build a relationship, maybe it leads to something else. But right now, nobody wants to be sold. Yeah, I'd be fine with that kind of LinkedIn conversation. Yeah. Bring those all day, every day. Everyone listening, hit me up on LinkedIn, say hi. I want that kind of relationship for sure. Um, you know, another thing for those listening, if you've learned something, and I freaking know you have because I have two pages of notes over here, <laughs> and uh, then share this with someone, right? Be a thought leader yeah, to please. one person, eight people, 74 people, 900, whatever you got on LinkedIn. But don't just share it, but like, put your thoughts into it. What were your takeaways? And that way, when you share it, you're the thought leader. We're just the source. Happy to be a part of that journey. Um, and then, you know, definitely check out that growth podcast and, and uh, don't be a stranger. So yeah. Angel, thanks again, man. This has been fantastic. I, I've just enjoyed chatting with you, hearing your story. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Talking Lake and talking forts and marketing and research and all this. Yeah. We covered a lot of topics, some, some off marketing topic, but I think all related somewhere in there. Yeah. I mean, it, all, it all sticks together somehow. Some shape yeah, or form. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally. totally. Well, thank well, you so much. I really appreciate it. Yeah. You know, me too. Me too. We'll have to chat again, you know, post COVID and, and, and catch up and see, see how things are going. Yeah. I'd love to do that. Thank you so much. Awesome. For all those right. out there listening, this has been the hardcore marketing show. We'll catch you all next time.